right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Patty. Um, so great to see all of you here on Zoom. So thrilled that we get to spend some more time talking about our Savior, talking about all these incredible different titles and names given to Jesus throughout the scriptures, getting to see how these, these different uh, names bestowed upon him throughout the Gospels truly show uh, in essence, who he was, what his intention was, what, what God was doing through him. So tonight, we're going to be looking at another, another one of these incredible phrases that Jesus is called, in this case, Jesus, the great I am. So before we, we get into this, this specific title, I want to do a little bit of an aside. Um, have you ever gotten in an argument with someone and you felt like, hey, they're saying this and I'm responding to that concept. But then in their response, they're talking about something totally different. Maybe it's old, old history or, or something. Uh, and then you try to respond to that and they respond to your response, but then suddenly it triggers in you some reminder of some old thing. And so then you go off to, to some other big tangent. And suddenly you're at a completely different place than where the original argument started. Now, the, the scriptures are very clear. Uh, we ought not to get distracted by, by tangential arguments, by the philosophy of the world, by uh, the sort of like uh, endless reasoning, a couple different uh, things that are said. First in Colossians 2.8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. And then also 2 Timothy 2, 23, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they will breed quarrels. Now, you know, both of these warnings in scripture, they're not directly talking about these types of arguments where, again, one person says one thing, the other person attempts to kind of respond in that lane, and then suddenly you're in a completely different spot and people are trying to respond, and, and by the end of one of these arguments, um, both parties have, have lost the plot. Whatever the, the original argument was, whatever the, the original contention, whatever was the main point, the conversation has become so, so muddled with other things, so, so um, disgraced by past history that it, that it no longer is about what it originally was supposed to be about. And one thing that I love about Jesus is that we see many, many examples in the scriptures of people trying to tangentially pull him away from his mission, and yet he remains steadfast in what he intended to do. Even when he temporarily gets, gets sidetracked by something else that is important and valuable, let alone something that's that's invaluable, but, but is attracted by something valuable, he still returns to what his original intention was. And so I'd like to say that Jesus has not lost the plot. Jesus has not lost the plot. And, and this is really helpful, and I think helps us to better understand the phrase, I am, more than a, a lot of other concepts that we could potentially look at this. So again, Sorry for my own tangential aside. Let's keep that in the back of our minds as we now begin to, to go through the scriptures here. And so we're going to be landing on this final point in John 8. John 8, 58 through 59. 
Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. And so uh, reading from, from uh, D.A. Carson's commentary on John says, Abraham looked forward to the Messianic age, the age that was, in John's understanding, inaugurated by the incar incarnation of the word who already was in the beginning, like God eternal. In conformity with John's prologue, Jesus takes to himself one of the most sacred of divine expressions of self-reference and makes the assumption of that expression the proof of his superiority over Abraham. So, so what is in many words being said? Jesus is claiming the same sort of divine self-reference, this idea that God himself in the Old Testament declares, I am who I am. So, so Jesus, by saying, I am, is linking himself to this, this thing that's presented in Genesis, that's presented in Isaiah, this like clear self-referential, like the authority of myself is coming from me, which doesn't seem like it holds much weight, but it actually does hold all the weight because it's saying there is no other supporting detail. I'm not coming to you and claiming that I have this credential from this school. I'm not coming to you and trying to prove to you about my experiences and my talents. All I am able to provide is the fact that I am who I am. And that's the the, the end of the argument that God gives in the, the Old Testament to, to say where, where it begins from. There is nothing else to, to base that God is supporting with besides himself. He is the ultimate support, this ultimate base. And so by Jesus making the same claim was enough for those that were around him to, to essentially say, well, this is blasphemous. Uh, they begin to pick up stones and throw them at him. And normally uh, at, at this point, like stoning was supposed to be the result of a judicial calm decision. It was supposed to be something that was was made after careful theoretical and theological reasoning that someone has committed some atrocity that deserves stoning. Not just this act of mob violence of, well, we're crowded around this guy, but in their eyes, what he had done was so outrageous to be landing himself in this same sort of self-referential divinity as God, that they were ready to, to just immediately throw, throw stones. That because in their assumption he had no right to make this claim, it was worth it to immediately charge without due process blasphemy and to kill him for it. So, so why is this so offensive? It's because Jesus is ending what is a series of arguments between him, him and this group of people by claiming that he has the same self-referential authority as God. And so we know that this is kind of where John has been leading in that, that original prologue within the, the chapter by entering in Jesus right along with the word as something that came before and has continued through all things. John's already made this claim 
but he's been building up to this point where Jesus makes this claim himself. And so just a, a little example of where we see this in the scriptures. There's a number of different places, but I, I like this one in Isaiah 41. Who has performed and done this, calling to generations from the beginning? I am the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. God was, God is, and God will be. And this understanding of God, that there is no greater argument, that there is no greater supporting fact, there is no better basis that you can then hin God to, it's the exact point and plot that Jesus has not lost in this argument and why it allows him to continue to navigate all of the people's concerns, frustrations, and issues with what he's saying. And so now let's back up to the beginning of this chapter and let's go through the various things and arguments that are claimed against Christ and see the way that he responds with this idea in mind that he is, I am. So starting a little bit earlier in the chapter, when, when kind of this, this is a clear marking point that this has been a, a new conversation. Uh, this then Jesus who said to the Jews uh, likely signifies that it is a little bit different point in time. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And now I'm reading from CSB tonight, so I'm sorry. It's a little disappointing when you don't get the, the sing-song in your brain to the Jews who had believed. However, uh, you know, same, same scripture. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And oh my goodness, this is good news. This is, this is something that it's like, this matters. What Jesus is presenting in front of them is an answer to their present problem. It's an answer to this frustration that they have had for millennia of yearning to be close to God, of yearning to do what's right, but continually failing. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But his, his hearers, his believers, the ones that had believed in him thus far are suddenly incredibly uncomfortable. They respond, we are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we, you will become free? And so what, what is the great affront by, by Jesus suggesting that freedom is attainable it has put them face to face with the reality that they very well may be enslaved to something. And so immediately their first protest is to their, their status, their position on earth. That, that somehow, because by being within this chosen people, this descendants of Abraham, that is what is awarding them their freedom. And we make this same argument as well. It is so easy, not in word, but in deed and belief for us to operate under the idea that our worldly status saves us. 
that somehow by us obtaining some title, some position, some authority, some credential, some respect and honor from others, that that will save us. And these people, like us people, like all people, felt the exact same thing. They felt safe in the status that they had obtained. They felt some sense of security that, that they were okay. And so by Jesus opening the door to this idea that if you continue in my word, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, it is immediately calling into question this worldly status as a saving factor. And so Jesus responds, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then you do what you have heard from your father. And lowercase father there, right? It's trying to make a clear distinction. Their father is not Jesus's father. And so Jesus is kind of like, he's uh, he's spoiling, <laughs> giving a little spoiler to the end of the story, right? Like, you are trying to kill me. This is the people who believed him. This was people that were following after and trying to learn from him that he's saying, like, you are trying to kill me because my word has no place in you. He's letting them know that whatever accolades, worldly status, descendants of Abraham that they have obtained, been birthed into, have some sort of sense of security within is faulty, that it alone is not going to be what saves them. And that, in fact, if they are committing sin, they are a slave to sin. They respond, our father is Abraham. And so now they've, they've kind of raised the emotional stakes. They're not just saying we are descendants of Abraham. They're saying our father is Abraham. They're, they're giving additional honor and respect to Abraham as the one that they follow after and come from. Um, they're trying to, in some ways, now get their saving grace from the fact that Abraham was considered righteous. And so they're, they're appealing to this idea that our lineage saves us. But the reality is no teacher, no mentor, no earthly father, no leader is ever going to be able to put us into God's graces. There's a responsibility on each of one ourselves of how we're going to respond to the scriptures, how we're going to respond to the word, how we're going to respond when Jesus asks us these very same questions and expects the same from us, how we'll respond. And, and all of these other things are not going to be what cuts it. And so Jesus responds to them, their emotional appeal that they are directly under their father Abraham, that they are somehow covered by his righteousness, 
covered by the blessing bestowed upon Abraham. They say, he, Jesus says, and now in verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. And so again, Jesus is offending them. He's, he's doing it intentionally to let them know you cannot just emotionally claim that Abraham is your father and have that cover you for your clear and present misdeeds. The fact that you're trying to kill me is proof that you are not Abraham's children. And so, of course, they are, they are, they feel something from this. They now respond, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. So, again, they're, they're almost upping the ante again. Descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father. We have one father, God. And they, they're doing this in and, and making calling to the account that they were not, weren't somehow born out of wedlock. There's the, not some sort of like pre-sin that's set against them. They're, they're claiming a, a purity before God. But we know our, our sinlessness doesn't save us either. It, it, we, we cannot somehow claim that we've obtained some level of righteousness that's going to, to clear us by all accounts in front of Christ. Jesus says back to them, If God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. But I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a lie and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. Jesus is looking past their belief. He's looking past their lineage. He's looking past the, the status that they've obtained. He's looking past their, their shows of righteousness and is getting to the core of who they are, who we are. He, he's getting right to the, to the end of it, that at the end of the day, they are children of the devil, that they, they carry out their own father's desires, that they carry out their own desires as opposed to listening to God and God's words. And, and Jesus is trying to make this point to them that like, hey, I am the word of God. So if you knew the word of God, you would know me. This would not be a question. We wouldn't be having this conversation. You wouldn't be having seven different layers of protest 
about my identity, you would know and listen and hear that I am from God. And I think we've all been at places in our life where we, we hear the scriptures clearly and fully and we know and are inspired and encouraged and know just what to do. And then there's times where our thinking is off, whether through, through bitterness's unclear gaze, whether through some sort of envy towards another, whether through lust, whether through anger that's unresolved, like something gets in the way and we hear God's word and it doesn't sit with us the same way as it has. It doesn't sit with us in, with the same way. But then if we're willing and we let it open up our eyes and again, clear the scales from them and again, wipe our mind clear and, and continue to transform us for God's image, we, we again see the word for what it is, life-giving. We see the word for what it does, save us and help us and, and get us through all sorts of present trouble. We, we as Christians shouldn't be at the place where we're reading the Bible is a chore. We, we shouldn't be at the place where, where we see making it to, to midweek as a chore, that we see going to service as a chore, that, that we see like all these different opportunities for us to continue to receive and be instilled in by the word as something that is, is a task or some sort of overwhelming thing in our life. If we see it that way, there's something off in our thinking. Because when we're seeing it from a godly perspective, we, we recognize its power, the hope that it provides, the encouragement that it provides, the, again, life-changing, life-giving, transformative thing that it is. And so Jesus was just trying to be upfront with them. He was trying to help them and say, look, guys, if you, if you knew me, then you would know I'm from God. If you knew the word, then you would know me. But this is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. And, and this, all of this together can be very challenging and painful but it also is the exact same life-giving salvation that Jesus had offered at the beginning of this passage. To be confronted by some shackle of sin that is holding us down, that is removing the, the life of the word from our eyes that we can't see clearly is an incredible gift. It is an incredible gift to be rebuked by someone when our eyes don't see the light. It is an incredible gift for the word of God to worm its way back into our heart and have the scales fall off. This is an incredible gift that Jesus is offering them, albeit in a painful, offensive way. Because what he sees on the other side of this painful moment of them dealing with the sin in their hearts 
is a freedom that surpasses all understanding. And so he's willing to offend and confront and frustrate and remove honor from them to give them a chance of that life-giving, life-altering freedom. And we as Christians can easily fall into not wanting to offer someone that because it is hard to confront things. Because it is easy to confront things in a way that is disrespectful and unloving. Because it is easy to do a bad job of it and cause more pain. But there's a way to do it. And Jesus shows that there's a way to do it. And the way to do it involves truth. It involves doing it and saying things clearly. So turning from this scripture to the next one, the Jews responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> and so based on everything that we've looked at so far, uh, they have reached the Hail Mary point of the argument. Let's just say that you're a demon and this whole thing didn't happen. This, this painful objection that you're giving to our hearts and our closed and scaled up eyes, it's easier for us to just pretend that you are wrong. And, you know, Jesus is just like, no, uh, guys, I do not have a demon. Jesus answered, on the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus, again, looking past their silly argument, just, just saying, no, guys, that's, that's not it and trying to again show and shine the light on what is true and what is valuable and what is actually good. I do not seek my own glory. Jesus is desperately trying to show them what God has been trying to show them all along, that their place in this world as his chosen people was not a, you deserve all honor and all glory, but you are going to be the basis on which I bless the nations. That I am going to pour out my care and blessing and instruction and precepts on you, that you would know how to live, and that by you doing it my way, by doing things in a godly fashion, are going to be able to take care of and nourish and tend to the entire world around you. I do not seek my own glory. And so he's giving them another chance to see clearly that he is the word, that he is one with God. Unfortunately, the Jews said, 
now we know you have a demon. <laughs> Which, again, I don't know. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? And so, you know, this is this is actually slightly encouraging. Um, I think that they're actually now a little bit more on track with what is the main event here, with what Jesus is trying to show them and teach him, teach them with his original phrasing. Um, but they're they're making appeal to their to their realism. You know, they're making an appeal to their their worldview. And and truly, right, our worldviews give us psychological safety. They, they allow us to put the world around us in convenient boxes of how it makes sense and how things operate. And, you know, this can look differently for, for anyone. Um, there, there's people that get a lot of psychological safety from the judicial system. There's people that get no psychological safety from the judicial system. There's people that get psychological safety in, in there being conspiracy theories. That like the idea that there's kind of some secret underlying thing that's pulling strings, that is a way that explains the world that makes them feel like they understand it. And all of us do this. We, we like to think that we don't. It just looks different for each of us. These, these worldviews, these, these ways that we explain what's going on around us and try to, again, fit it into kind of like convenient boxes so it makes sense in our brain, it gives us psychological safety, but it will not save us. These, these men and women who in many ways did try to honor God, they had a view of their father, Abraham, they had a, drew, a view of the prophets, and they, they felt like this understanding would save them, and Jesus did not fit into that picture with what he was saying. And so he says, If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My Father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham. And, you know, at this point, they're, they're essentially kind of just alluding to this idea um, the the non-politically correct way to say it would be that he's crazy, right? Like that his brain doesn't work, that something is is wrong with how he's processing because he's just so foolish. He's not even 50 years old and he's claiming to see Abraham. Um, and, and truly, right, this is kind of like the last straw, the last way to discredit Christianity is to just look at it and be like, that's just foolishness. But Jesus says to them, Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. And this phrasing here right at the end of the passage is very important. This idea of Jesus going out of the temple, it is what's happening in the story. It's the realistic picture of, okay, he left the temple. But it also 
is another step in Jesus's separating from the temple that humans had made with human hands that God had resided in for a moment, but that was not the ultimate realization of God's plan for humanity. That was not the final resting place of God's spirit on earth. And so this went out of the temple John is using to also foretell into the future this idea that God's spirit constricted within the temple is not the end-all be-all. Uh, that that this, this system that these humans had built that they felt good about, that had given them some psychological safety, was not actually completing God's will, and it was not going to be, be again, the end-all be-all. And so Jesus doesn't, you know, uh, isn't saying something about the transfiguration. He's not talking about seeing or not seeing Abraham. He's making a much wider, larger, bigger claim. I am. And he's doing it because he hasn't lost the plot. He's doing it because he has been laser focused on this same idea, this revealing of himself to those who had believed him with the expectation that now they were going to have to put their faith in action. And so he's leading them through all of their meandering disbelief and frustrations and appealing to their own human status and their own human uh, station in life to get them to the main point, which is, again, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What we can come up with as humans, our status, our perceived sinlessness, our own uh, self-definition of righteousness, our, our realistic, realistic picture of the world that we think that we have such a good understanding of how it works, the, our ability to claim that others are the ones that are not right in the head, our, our lineage and where we're from and what we take great pride in is not going to cut it. None of those things are the actual entry point to God. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus ends <laughs> his argument with them right back where he started, that Jesus is the I am. And just like God was the great I am, all of people's misunderstandings, frustrations, confusions, protests can be cleared up if they just fix their eyes on Jesus and do what he says. And, and that advice might seem frustrating when we've been doing something for decades and it just doesn't feel like it's working or it just doesn't seem like it has the same appeal that it used to or there's just something that's off. But the reality is Jesus was and is and will be the salvation and entry point to God. And so if there's just something that's off, 
that doesn't feel right, we have to examine ourselves. And we have to examine how realistically we actually have been following those instructions. That maybe those tried and true paths that seem somehow insufficient for us at this point, that maybe we're no longer actually following them. That maybe we've gotten a bit lost in the woods because it was so routine that we're no longer going to his word and allowing it to transfigure, tra transform our very hearts. Jesus, the great I am, and God, the great I am. Now, we don't have time to go through it tonight, but I want to leave you with one additional slide uh, that if you want to do further study on this Jesus claiming that he's the I am, uh, is an excellent study to do. And, and I preached on this relatively recently in the West, but if you're in the East, certainly please take a screenshot of this, because this shows a another conversation, in this case between Moses and God, where Moses is going through complaint, frustration, confusion, but I'm not worthy, but the people, but they won't believe me, but what will I say, but please not me. And God is answering him, not by pandering to his concerns, not by saying, oh, Moses, you do a great job, not by saying, ah, you're the right, you're the right guy, but instead reminding Moses that God is the great I am that he is the one who will provide, that he is the one that will provide proof, that he is the one that has created our very mouths and the very breath that we breathe and the very world around us. And so if we are at all concerned, has God provided us with the ability to live a godly life? The answer is yes. Yes, he absolutely has. That's, that's all <laughs> that he could create, um, that he is the great I am, and that because of that, all of our questions, frustrations, confusions are answered in Jesus, in him. So God, the great I am, and Jesus, the great I am. Thank you so much for your attention and your time tonight. It's been a pleasure.